Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, that's uh, Pearl Jam's Daughter, right? Uh, anybody know that song? Great song. Uh, came off of their second record, Versus. Um, and it's just a powerful song, you know, that, that, that chorus lyric, don't call me daughter, you're not fit to call me daughter. Uh, a young woman who is speaking to her, her parents. Um, I remember when Pearl Jam's first record came out, um, I'm that, uh, of that generation called Generation X. Anybody, any other Generation X people? Right on. Feel your pain. Um, music, is, music is funny culturally, rock and roll's funny culturally, rock and roll is always has this, you know, tension with, with parents. Rock and roll, not a fan of parents. Parents, sometimes not a fan of rock and roll. And I was, I was thinking about this, like, right around, you know, 1990, 1994, when this, especially when this thing called grunge started coming out. You know, all, for those of us who were of that age, we kind of woke up and these scales fell off our eyes, and we realized that there was a whole lot wrong with the world, and we didn't know how to fix it, but we were pretty sure our parents were responsible for it. <laughs> and so, uh, especially Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam, they wrote a bunch of songs. Uh, Daughter, we were talking backstage, there was a song called Release off of their first record. Just this, just this incredible tension of looking at parents and, and families and going, oh man, there's something that is so broken and so just... Uh, um, uh, operative word in my generation was angst, angsty about our families of origin. And so we just wanted to kind of play that song to kind of set up the topic. Because what we're talking about today is toxic families. And uh, this is uh, oof, uh, a heavy topic, right? Um, and I'm not going to pretend that it's not. Um, and in fact, I want to ask you before we go too far, I want to ask you for your grace and for your forgiveness uh, because. When you start talking about families and toxicity and poison and hurt, oh man, some of us go to really, really raw places instantly. And so what I want to do right now, before I go any further, is acknowledge there is a tremendous amount of pain in this room, I guarantee you, for your people in this room, around the subject of families. And, and yet, and yet, and yet, God has given me some things that I feel I have to say. And I don't want to make that pain any worse for anybody. But at the same time, I have to tell you that as a pastor, as a staff member, God has said, Eric, gotta be honest about some stuff, okay? So will you guys grant me a little grace? If I hurt or say anything that, that, that opens a wound for you, please, please understand. It's not my intention to do that, okay? Was that clear? I don't think I can make it any clearer. So um, I want to show you guys a picture. You guys tell me, who, who is this or what, who is this a statue of? David. David, right. I've said this before. I've used this picture before. This is the church appropriate picture of <laughs> statue of King David. Um, Michelangelo's statue of him. Now, David um, is a guy in the Bible who casts an extremely long shadow, right? He is all the way through uh, most of the Old Testament, through the New Testament, a major, major, major biblical figure, okay? And there's a phrase that if you've read the Bible, if you've been around church, you may have heard this phrase that David is a man after God's own heart. 
If you read the stories about King David, and there are many stories, it's not just one story of King David, there's multiple stories. If you read the stories of King David, you may have difficulty understanding how he can be a man after God's own heart, okay? I have tension with phrases like this because we seize on them in the church and we throw them around a lot. Well, David was a man after God's own heart. And I'm gonna be honest with you. Frankly, sometimes I'm like, well, have you read the stories about David? Because I'm gonna read one today to you. The way phrases like that, that we throw around lightly, tend to level off the stories behind those phrases. They tend to smooth out the rough edges of people. And as a person who takes the Bible seriously and as a thinking human being, I have a problem with that. David's story is rough. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that David was not a man after God's own heart. I'm just saying, sometimes when you hear a story like what we're gonna hear today, it's difficult to reconcile those two things. So, the story I'm gonna tell you comes out of 2 Samuel, and it, it covers like five chapters of material. So I'm not gonna read all the text, I'm just gonna give it to you in about 10 episodes and just have you understand what David is like in this particular instance. So, we're gonna start off and I'm just gonna tell you David has multiple wives. He has a few different wives. He has a few different sons by those wives. His oldest son is a guy named Amnon. His third oldest son is a man named Absalom, okay? Now, let me just pause before we get too far into this and acknowledge that there is great difficulty also when you start to study the Bible in understanding how the ancient world, which our Bible is a part of, viewed women. Guys had multiple wives. Women were treated as property in a lot of instances. And as a biblical scholar, again, this is difficult sometimes to reconcile with. And we're gonna hear some different layers of that today. So David has multiple wives. He has sons by those wives. Oldest is Amnon. Third oldest is Absalom. They come of age. Amnon falls in love, maybe not in love, let's just say it this way, Amnon decides he wants Absalom's sister Tamar. So Amnon's half-sister, Absalom's sister. Uh, Amnon decides he wants to have Tamar physically, sexually. So with the help of his cousin, David's nephew, Amnon constructs a plan to get Tamar alone with him, isolated, vulnerable, and he rapes her, his half-sister, Absalom's sister. Not only does he rape her, but when the deed is done, he looks at Tamar and essentially says, you disgust me, get away. Tamar begs Amnon, not only have you violated me, if you send me away now, I have no place to hide. Everyone's going to know. The shame that I'm going to experience is unimaginable. And Amnon says, I don't care. It's not my problem. Get out of my sight. David finds out about it. David does not do anything. 
okay? And that's one of the tensions that I have with David's story is that sometimes David as a king just inexplicably goes inactive. So Absalom takes matters into his own hands. And for two years, he waits. And then two years later, he constructs a plan to get Amnon to come away from Jerusalem, away from the king, away from David, to a place where Amnon can exact his revenge. So two years later, Absalom murders Amnon. Then he runs away. David is is pretty upset. Uh, But the scriptures say that he essentially gets over it and he decides he wants to see Absalom again, but he doesn't really do anything about it. He's like, yes, I'd like to see my son Absalom. But then he just sits and waits. Well, finally, uh, David has this general named Joab who is a man of action. He's kind of the opposite of David in a lot of ways. So Joab says, I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna make this thing happen. So Joab essentially uh, gets David to allow Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. So David says, get him to come back. Get him to come back to the city where I live. But then David lets Absalom wait in Jerusalem for two more years before he can see his father. David does not punish, has not punished Absalom, has not punished Amnon. It's just going on. The story's just unraveling. After a couple years, David uh, receives finally Absalom. They, you know, he, he says, whatever, I'm glad you're back. Then the story goes on. Absalom begins to undermine his father's rule. Essentially, by, by publicly going to people and go like, hey, if you, didn't, if you went to see the king for some manner of justice and you didn't get what you wanted from him, you should come talk to me because I want to hear your problems. So at every turn, Absalom is now going behind his father's back and undermining David's rule. And people start to respond. The people who didn't get what they wanted from David start to look to Absalom as a leader and things like this have a way of building up. So Absalom does this for four years and then he decides, hey, let's push the envelope even more. And Absalom moves to open rebellion against his father. Takes up arms, gets a little army together and things don't go good for for David. David has to leave Jerusalem. The king has to leave Jerusalem. So he gets out, he takes some people with him who are still loyal to him. But before he goes, or as he's going, David encourages some people to stay in Absalom's sphere of influence. And these people uh, sort of manipulate Absalom's thinking. They work now to undermine Absalom's rule. Absalom gets this idea that he wants to humiliate his father even more. He's undermined his rule. He's taken up arms. He's thrown his father out of Jerusalem. Now he's like, what can I do that will humiliate David even further? Well, again, in the ancient world, uh, women were just treated as less than equal human beings. David has a whole harem of women, concubines. Absalom decides that one way to humiliate his father will be to have sex with his father's concubines in public. So he erects a tent on top of the palace so that everybody can watch. 
And everybody will know now who's in charge in Jerusalem. These advisors that are around Absalom continue to whisper and continue to, to work uh, their way to get Absalom to make some decisions that aren't great. And they trick Absalom into doing battle with his father pretty much before Absalom is really ready to. So they say, provoke a battle, call your father out. David is forced to confront army to army his son. As he goes into it though, David instructs his men, do not kill my son. He's my son. Never mind that he's done all these things. Never mind that I have not um, enforced discipline maybe the way I should have in the past. He's my son, don't hurt him. But things don't work out that way. Uh, we're told that Absalom has this huge mane of hair and that somehow in the battle, not ever having long hair, I don't know how this might happen, but somehow during the battle, Absalom's hair gets caught in a tree and he's stuck and David's men catch him. But they don't do anything because David has said what? Don't kill my son. They come back and they tell the general, Joab, the man of action. They say, hey, we've captured Absalom, but we haven't hurt him. Joab's like, let me, let me at this guy a little bit. Joab goes to Absalom, never minding what the king has said. And Joab stabs him, I think three times, and kills Absalom. And at this point, I'm going to read a passage of scripture. Because at this point, uh, one of the most, I don't know, just emotionally powerful passages of Scripture to me um, is in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Nobody wants to tell the king his son's dead. Somebody has to draw the short straw, right? And they go, and there's an Ethiopian guy that has to give the king the news. So picking up in verse 31. Then the man from Ethiopia arrived and said, I have good news for my Lord, the king. Today, the Lord God has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. David responds, what about young Absalom? Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, may all of your enemies, my Lord, the king, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. Okay, that's biblical shorthand for he's dead. <laughs> and the king was overcome with emotion. And he went up to the room over the gateway and he burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom. My son, my son. And before we go on, I just want to ask you guys a question. Has anybody ever, have you ever let something go and not taken care of something or not dealt with something, thinking that it would take care of itself? And then one day the walls just come down. Because as a father and as a, Man, sometimes I think that's what David's experiencing. 
For so long, he's let Absalom get away with things, do things. He's let his whole family get away with things, thinking that the problem would solve itself. And then one day he has to wake up and he has to say, my son, my son. And in that moment, I think David knows more than any other, you can't turn back time. You cannot go back and say the things you should have said and do the things you should have done. And I think at that point, David knows um, more than any other that his family is toxic. And that's the first thing I wanna suggest to you. That David, though he is a man after God's own heart, presides over a toxic family. One son rapes his half-sister. The other son murders his other son. This sounds just slightly dysfunctional. So last week, um, Pastor Mark talked about toxic friends. I thought that message was so good. Uh, The way that you can diagnose a toxic friendship, you know, the things that you can do to deal with the toxic friendship. But as I was thinking about this week, I needed to, to, to look at this differently because I think most of us know that the wounds that we have in our families are different types of wounds. We choose our friends for the most part, do we not? And when a friend is toxic, we at least have the right to say, I gotta get away from you. But there are no wounds like family wounds, are there? And if you're carrying that wound, chances are you didn't choose to be in the family that you were in. You're born into a family. You're born into a name. Amen? So some of us carry wounds and we're like, this thing that I got I didn't choose it. These people that are in my life, I didn't choose them. They just happened to me. So I wanna spend a little time just examining as this, as this worked itself out in my life, because I gotta tell you guys, this message is real to me, okay? This message is real to me. I've, I've, I've lived it. My family in one sense is great and wonderful. In another sense, man, I had to, I had to walk this the same as you guys. And I stumbled across a quote by an author named Anne Lamott years ago. And I want to uh, read this quote for you guys and just kind of talk about the way this family thing played itself out for me. So we can put this quote up on on the screen. Anne Lamott wrote, wrote in Traveling Mercies, she says, it's funny. I always imagined when I was a kid that adults had some kind of inner toolbox full of shiny tools. The saw of discernment, the hammer of wisdom, and she says, the sandpaper of patience. And I resonated with that. And as I was growing up, and and particularly in my 20s even, this is not like young guy stuff, this is like 20 stuff, my perception was, is that my parents had it all together. My parents could deal with life. And my perception was that they had They could deal with life because they had these great tools to deal with life, shiny tools. Like 
whatever life threw at them, they had these awesome tools that they could just point and be like, I got it, I got it. Debt, I got it. Job loss, I got it. Conflict, I got it. And I thought that when I got older, I would inherit tools like this. So that when debt came my way or when conflict came my way, I would have a great shiny drill or a nice hammer or a decent crescent wrench. And I could just go, oh, I got a, I got a tool for that. Just let me do this thing. But in reality, as I began to deal with life, when I reached into my toolbox, I pulled out like this thing. You know, and I'm like, why does my drill look like it's from 1947? And, I, and it's not wireless, so it's like, and it's got a thing missing from the ground thing, and I might get shocked when I use this tool. Or like, we're like, when I reach in my toolbox, I'm like, well, okay, I, I get, okay, I need a saw. And this is the only thing that came out. And I'm like, this is good if I had to like, like a, a quarter inch you know, copper pipe, but I got to saw like a log for firewood or something. And as I began to go into my toolbox to deal with what life was throwing at me, the stuff I was pulling out didn't look like what I thought was going to come out. My tools were broken. I thought I was going to be able to cope with what came my way. And instead, when I pull my drill out, I'm like, I don't know, I don't even know if this thing's gonna work. How many of you guys have ever gone through that? I'm just being like, I am ill-prepared to deal with that. And I thought my family was gonna give me the tools I needed to survive and excel. And instead, I, I don't know. And this played itself out really powerfully in my marriage. And it was really, really hard for me. But she goes on, and, and, and I want to just kind of not leave us there because she says something else about tools. So we can put the second half of that quote. She says, but then, when I grew up, I found that life handed you these rusty tools. Friendships, prayer, conscience, honesty, at the time, I got to tell you, those did not sound like great tools to me. I'm like, give me a better paying job. That's the tool I need. And said, do the best you can with these. They'll have to do. Mm. Those are not the tools I wanted. So I want to talk now. I want to go back to David's story. And I want to look at these two main characters, David and Absalom. Because both of them are a mess. A hot mess. Now, I'm a father, right? So I'm going to talk first about David's part in this. David's part in his toxic family. I got a 16-year-old daughter, a 12-year-old son. When my daughter was born, the image and the thought that came to my mind, and I'm just speaking personally here, was that I now had an 18-year project in front of me. Hold on that I had 18 years to produce a functioning human being, okay? That's the way I looked at it. I have 18 years to get this right because 18 years from now, hopefully she's going out the door. 
to encounter the world and hopefully do some good. So I got 18 years to get it right. That's my job, my number one job. Now, was I perfect at it? Oh, no. She's back there. You can ask her. But that's my job, job one. Um, and my wife and I were talking this weekend, Shana and I were talking about like, and, and when I say a, a functioning human being, you know, that's works, it's different for different families. So in my family, like when we talk about a, a, a functioning human being, a well-rounded individual, we talk about somebody who, who has a mind for justice in the world and compassion. People who uh, value education in our house who appreciate culture and art, who like to laugh, don't take themselves too seriously. So that's what it looked like for us. And um, I I thought about this, another image, um, as like a target and a ball. And of course, a soccer ball. So in my mind, this sort of represents my goal as a parent, to, to have a target, to roll the ball towards the target of having a functioning human child person who is contributing to the world, who loves God. And so Daryl's gonna stand over there. In a perfect world, if Daryl represents, okay, I've done my job, person who you know, values education, blah, 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 all those things. In a perfect world, if I'm aiming at Daryl with this ball, and I understand there's all kinds of gear on the stage, so if I'm not perfect, but if I roll the ball to Daryl in a perfect world, it will get there. It will get there. If I throw the ball with enough force, and if the ball is balanced, it'll get there, and I'll achieve the goal. But unfortunately, that's not reality for most of us, because most of us, make mistake as parents. And we deflate our kids by things we say or don't say. And then if we're honest, and if I'm honest, and I am being honest with you, we're also not perfect because we put stuff on our kids that we don't intend to, we don't want to. Thoughts, doubts about themselves, doubts about the world, and all of a sudden, it makes our job a little harder. And so if the target is still the same, but my ball is deflated and out of whack, it ain't got much of a chance to get there. It's just not. And the clearest I could say it And one of the things that I feel like God has to say to me today is that some of us in this room are parents. And we need to be honest with ourselves and say that we've put stuff on our kids and we've deflated them in some really, really powerful ways that have hurt their ability to reach the target that we should have had for them. Can we be honest? Um, parenting's not easy. If you were to say to yourself in a moment of honesty that I have 
put things on my kids. I've let things out of my kids' lives that should have been there. I want to tell you very powerfully that the best thing, the first best thing you can do is simply this, name it and own it. And then ask for forgiveness. Go to your kids. Go to your family. And say, guys, I'm just being honest. I've dropped the ball. And get help. Because it's not easy. But that's not the whole story, is it? Right? Because David's got a part in this. But so does Absalom. David was not the guy that raped Tamar. Absalom did that. And if we're honest, we have to look at what it means to take responsibility for our lives. Because Absalom at one point has to own up to the fact that he has made mistakes, right? So what's this look like? As I said, when I started going into my toolbox and I started pulling out what I thought was gonna be a shiny drill or a shiny hammer or a perfect craftsman screwdriver. My mom worked for Sears, so it always had to be craftsman. And I pulled out these broken, rusty, you know, like pliers that are too small. I'd be like, I can't work with these. What is my family given to me. You know when my life started to change for the better is when I looked at the tools and I said, well, they're not what I wish they were, but they're the only tools that are coming out of this box. And the bottom line is that nail needs to be hammered, that life needs to be dealt with, that debt needs to be paid. And I wish my tools were better but they're the only ones I have. And I stopped blaming my family for what they didn't give me and started working with what I did have, which wasn't much. And so I looked and I was like, you know, I don't even know if this thing will turn on and I might need to use it as a hammer to beat the nail into the wood. But if that's what it takes... I guess that's what it's gonna take because there's nothing else coming out of that box right now. The shiny new drill isn't coming out. This is what I have to work with. So when you are a part of a toxic family or when you carry that type of wound, the first thing that I want to say to you that might sound harsh, but I just have to say it because I feel like I have to be honest is that it starts with going, this is what I gotta work with. Right now there's no tools coming. There's no more tools coming. So I take out the rusty saw. I take out this thing that doesn't look like it's gonna work, but I'm just gonna start dealing with life with what I have in my box right now. No family is perfect, you see? We always think that somebody else has got a better toolbox than you do, but I've lived just long enough to know that everybody else has got rusty tools in their, their toolbox too. 
We think everybody else has the shiny hammer. Guess what? Nobody does. We pull, everybody pulls the stuff out like, whoa, here goes nothing. And we all get by. Check these words out. This is from the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to plant a thought in your head. Actually, I think God wants to plant a thought in your head. Chapter 3, verse 1. For everything, there is a season. You can give an amen. That's cool. A time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to... Ooh, is it really what that said? Time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to what? Mm, dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak. Somebody should write a song. Goes like this. <laughs> time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. For those of you who would say, I am living, I am living the results of a toxic family, like Absalom was, when will it be your time to heal? Because some of us walk through life thinking that it's never going to be time to heal. And all I can tell you from personal experience is that God can and he will when you open up your heart to the possibility that the time is now. that you take God up on this promise that says, God, I think you want to heal these wounds, no matter how deep they are, no matter how crooked I feel, no matter how, no matter how rusty and broken my tools are, I think you can, I think you will work something better in my life than what I have. Could it be that God is offering you the idea that it is time now to heal. But you can't choose your family, right? You're born into a name, right? Mm. Mm. You see, this book, this book is, is laden through with family language. In fact, um, it kind of changes everything for me. But you can't, because you can't choose your family of origin, but guess what you can choose? You can choose your family of faith. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something, your family of faith will fill in the gaps of your family of origin. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how this works. So it starts with God, right? And God is our father, right? Okay, so some of you are like, okay, I'm out. Done. Because Eric, you don't know my dad. If you call God my father, I'm out of that conversation. 
And we laugh about it, but it's true, right? Some of us have fathers that were, woof. Okay? I get that. But one of the most profound, game-changing statements about God is found in the book of Colossians. Write it down. Colossians 1, 15 where the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is the image of the unseen God. And what that means is that if you want to know what God is like, even as our Father, don't think about your Father. Think about who? Jesus. If you've never opened up this book to read the Gospels, and you want to know what your Father in heaven looks like, that should be motivation for you to jump in. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, go. Because in those pages of that gospel, you will see that your Father in heaven, if the Apostle Paul is right and telling the truth, and I believe he is, that your Father in heaven is compassionate, self-sacrificing, embracing of the outsider. You're hurting, Jesus says, come on, which means your Father in heaven says, come on. Accepting. He doesn't always tell you the comfortable things, but he tells you the truth. Jesus has a heart for the broken, the hurting, the lost. That means your Father in heaven. So it starts with him. But in the nest of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul also loves, loves, loves this word. The Greek word is adelphos, translated brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. People, you are in a family. If you reckon yourself a part of the church, you are part of the family. So look around. It's your new family. They're not the most attractive people, but they'll do. In 1 Timothy, Paul calls the church the household of God. The household of God. This is our household, people. Right here at 1184 Capital Circle. This is your new family. Wrap your mind around that. Nobody comes from a perfect family. But God has put a new family in your life. To say, I had a really rough upbringing. Eric, you don't know my parents. You don't know my mother. You don't know my father. You didn't know my brothers, my sisters. I say, yeah, I don't. But I know a whole room full of other brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who are here for you now. I want to tell you that God has done something special in my life in this very area this year he is not lying about this folks this is not a false promise I want to leave you with this thought because there's a challenge in this and the challenge is simply this if you are further down the road in life and I include myself in this I want you to think about your relational world right now. And if there's nobody that is younger than you, that looks like a child, 
that you can pour into, if there's nobody in your life like that, guess what? This church is losing because of that. Let me be more blunt. Old people, you need young people in your life. Because all of the stuff that, that we need to do as parents to our own kids, we need to do to, to children in our family of faith. Build into young people. Young people. Mm. Hold on. <laughs> if you're starting out in life, and there's nobody with gray hair in your world, and I don't mean the people that you just kind of roll your eyes at and ignore everything they say. It's kind of a tough word. It's a church word. If there's nobody, young people, that you are submitted to, this church is losing. So the challenge is, you're in your 20s, 30s, teens, you find somebody older than you who's been through a little bit, who's reached into that toolbox a little bit and say, please tell me it gets better. How did you deal with this? Because when we don't live out the reality of being a family of faith, guess what? The whole church loses. I look at you guys every week. There are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters in this room. But if we don't live it out, we just carry around sometimes a lack of hope that a toxic family will give you. And it doesn't need to be that way. Amen? I'm gonna ask you guys to bow your heads and pray and then we're just gonna reflect through a song of the invitation that God gives us to heal. So, let's pray. 